I think it's very difficult to keep momentum for momentum's sake. We all have a thousand things to do. We're all slightly exhausted. We all have complicated relationships with someone in our families that we need to deal with, right? Like it's life. (laughs) And so for me, I think the thing that keeps momentum, again, over the course of a lifetime is nurturing and practicing the deep ability of discerning the need in front of you and finding creative ways to bring people along to address it. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore the question of how do we begin again as we start to emerge from a global pandemic with the opportunity to restructure our lives, our relationships, and our communities in new ways. It's been a bit of a wait since I launched the opening episode for season four, but we'll be dropping into a regular monthly rhythm of new episodes from here on out. And let me tell you, if today's interview is any indication, and it is, this season's lineup is going to be strong. But before I dive into the introduction, let me share an important note about the future of this podcast. As part of my own personal journey of beginning to detangle myself little by little from the standard capitalistic modes of doing business, this podcast will no longer be an ad-supported show. Instead, Hurry Slowly will rely entirely on listener donations to support itself moving forward. Now, I'm guessing you've probably already got this impression, but I don't just toss off these episodes. On this interview alone, I spent hours and hours reading books, listening to podcasts, reviewing old interviews, and meditating deep and long on exactly what questions to ask. To say nothing of the time spent afterwards on editing the episode and prepping it to be published, which includes substantive time from myself and my producer, as well as a final layer of audio fine-tuning which is a long way of saying I don't just twitch my nose and these episodes appear. It is, in fact, a lot of work. So if this episode resonates with you or you have been listening to Hurry Slowly for a long time and benefited from the wisdom of our many guests, I would love it if you made a donation. You can visit www.hurryslowly.co slash donations to make a vital contribution to supporting this podcast their one-time donation or ongoing subscription options available. And to be honest, this shift to being listener-supported really feels like a little bit of a trust fall. So I'm crossing my fingers that some of y'all out there are game to offer your support. All right, that's enough of the pledge drive portion of this episode. I promise that it will be a rare event. Let's get on to the absolute magic of today's interview, during which I nodded furiously in agreement with almost everything that my guest said. I should note that this conversation was originally recorded on Zoom in front of a live audience with a small group of folks from my new community project, Radiate, in attendance. Let's dive in. It's a huge honor to welcome Priya Parker back to Hurry Slowly for the second time. I first met her back in 2018, as her book, The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, was first coming out. And she kindly came to my apartment in Brooklyn to do the interview in person. And that was back when we took magical moments like having a new person in our home for granted. And we really didn't think twice about it. 
in the interim, since we last met, we've all been through and are still moving through, as everyone knows, a global pandemic that sent us all into seclusion and really brought the importance of gathering and our craving to gather into incredibly sharp focus. During that time period, Priya also hosted and executive produced an incredible podcast called Together Apart that was a really beautiful exercise in having meaningful conversations and also in problem solving, how we might meet and gather in a world that was riddled with constraints. And in addition to writing The Art of Gathering and hosting her podcast, Priya is also an expert facilitator and a seasoned conflict resolution mediator who regularly holds space and facilitates groups in having complicated conversations. And all of this experience, in my opinion, positions Priya to be perfectly poised to meet this moment. As we emerge back into community and back into gathering on wobbly legs and into a world that needs the type of healing that can only come through having complicated conversations, I think her work is essential. Priya, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a treat to be back with you. And I also remember the last time we were in conversation, uh, though though we didn't take it for granted to be able to gather, you were one of the only podcast hosts who invited me to their home. So even then, I thought it was very special. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a luxury. And I'm sure as you yourself know from that experience or maybe the limited other experiences you've had from doing in-person podcasts, it, the energy changes completely when you're able to be in the same room. So when that's available, I try to take advantage of it. So let's dive right in. Your interest in why we come together, the conflicts that arise, and why we break apart really comes from a very personal place, your own very unique upbringing and background. Could you give listeners a little insight into your story and how it brought you to this work in the first place? I, I think probably like so many, so many of you and so many of us um, have found my, my work and my path and the paths and the, and the kind of the problems and challenges that intrigue me and that um, I find myself sort of continually interested by, um, very much informed by my own early years um, as a young person, I uh, I was born in Zimbabwe. Um, my mother is Indian. My father is white American. And um, for about 12 years, they were um, married and in relationship with each other and, um, and, and were kind of sort of footloose and fancy free. Uh, my mother is the third of five children in an Indian household. Um, she did not want to get an arranged marriage. She secretly applied to grad school in the States. Um, as she tells it now, had no idea where Iowa was. <laughs> Just get me on that plane. <laughs> and, um, and, my, and she met my father at Iowa State University. And he had just come back from uh, serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon. And a, a former teacher of his said, you know, why don't you, you're going to go, you're going to be going back through uh, kind of reverse culture shock, um, culture shock actually. And you should uh, volunteer at the international students office because there's a bunch of Cameroonian students there. And so they met, um, they met at the international, they met at a gathering <laughs> at the international students office. 
and um, and then just kind of became each other's source of adventure and discovery and exploration and lived in many different countries. Um, I lived in the Maldives and Indonesia and India and The Hague um, as a child and then eventually moved back to the States. And um, within a few years of moving to Virginia, they separated um, and divorced and then each remarried other people. And the people they married were very much um, kind of more from the original worlds and worldview that they first came from. And these two new invented, created families um, had joint custody. And every two weeks, I would go back and forth between these two homes. And, um, and I share this story often in part just because it just so deeply uh, influences my lens and my work. But I would go back and forth and I would go from my mother and stepfather's home, which was this Indian, British, Buddhist, um, landmark forum for those of you who know what that is, <laughs> uh, progressive, vegetarian, you know, Reiki-filled household, and um, would travel to my father and stepmother's house, and it was and still is a white American, evangelical Christian, conservative, Republican, twice-a-week church-going, like meat-eating, dogs, like dogs in the house, pets, you just sort of American, you know, kind of I'm using this in quotes, like kind of all American, um, which, you know, now reads as, you know, very white as well, household. And I was a part of both. Um, you know, I joke, my name is Priya Parker, and you can kind of guess which side is which. Um, but that has very, very deeply created, um, you know, it, it deeply formed my decision to become a conflict resolution facilitator. And it also has deeply, deeply influenced my ability to realize that the ways that we gather um, and what we gather around and what we deem to be worthy about gathering is invented. And we have a much wider range of choice to choose how we spend our time than we assume. Thank you for that. I really wanted folks who didn't know all of that about your background to have that context. It's such a remarkable story. And so clearly, one has such a sense of why you do this work immediately upon hearing it. So I want to move right into talking about some of the challenges that are arising for us and some of the possibilities in terms of gathering as we're in this moment of emergence. And if we set aside for a moment the purely physical constraints and sensitivities and anxieties, and I realize that's a very big thing to set aside, what do you feel is different about gathering now? What's fundamentally shifted in your opinion about both the possibilities and maybe even the urgencies? I mean, I think the deepest thing that has shifted might sound quite obvious, but we see it, right? We see gathering as a thing. <laughs> After 14 to 16 months of not being able to physically gather, we actually are now seeing it as something that um, we can design or create or think about or shape or shift. And before the pandemic, uh, you know, facilitators like me thought endlessly about gatherings, event planners thought about gatherings, sociologists thought about how groups meet, but it wasn't this kind of, you know, you, ubiquitous, 
um, concept that most people were thinking about or analyzing or, um, or intentional about in any way. And um, it was just water, right? I mean, we were gathering all of the time. Some of it was great. Some of it was not great. And we were just kind of on autopilot. And I, and I wrote this book, The Art of Gathering, in 2018. And like, and before the pandemic, a huge part of just me talking and, and being with people was just trying to get them to see the unit of gathering, right? A gathering is anytime three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, or end. Like a wedding is a gathering. A breakfast meeting is a gathering. This like podcast experience is a gathering. Um, and, and, and pausing to say like, we can do this in many ways. Let's pause and think about what actually creates meaningful transformative experiences. And after the pandemic, you know, at when, I mean, seeming basically overnight in March, 2020, the word gathering both heightened in terms of use, right? If you remember back, it was in so many headlines, gatherings, banned, you know, governor of Washington limits gatherings to 10 to 12 people. I mean, just all of a sudden, like I could have the word gathering as a Google alert in February, 2020, right? And I wouldn't have been bombarded. In March, 2020, like you just, you know, your computer crashes. <laughs> but the second thing that happened is that the meaning of the word gathering, the context of the word also shifted overnight. It went from a source of connection and meaning and fun and laughter to danger, death, disease. Um, and, and the entire um, kind of invisible social patterns that we had been going through life about how, like the way you navigate space, whether you go to an office or not, who you're meeting, when, at what time of a day do you, you know, go through an elevator, all of a sudden, all of those things paused. And so I think this moment that we're in now, the shift is that the invisible has become visible. And this doesn't happen very often, at least collectively. And so we have an, a huge possibility and opportunity to actually see it. And while we're seeing it, choose to redesign the frame. As we come back to gathering with this new opportunity to frame things and to be more intentional and to be more purposeful, one of the things that you write about in The Art of Gathering is that we gather to solve problems that we cannot solve ourselves. And that seems to be for me, a very necessary focus for gatherings right now. I'm curious how you're seeing people gathering to problem solve in unusual or inspiring ways, whether that's online or off. I think from the very beginning of the pandemic hitting, we began to gather in ways that in, in kind of traditional communities um, were, very, uh, were very normal. Um, so everything from things like having a childcare pod, right? Like childcare had become so privatized and so individuated. You may have 30, 30 units in an apartment building of 30 babysitters, right? Whereas 30 years ago or 60 years ago, or 80 years ago, those units would all have figured out a way, right? Solving a need that everybody feels by having a teenage kid in the building, you know, rotate through, 
uh, like a babysitter club, right? Or have one babysitter and having six neighbors all deciding, you know, to share that to share that cost. Um, we saw the rise of mutual aid groups. Again, not a new concept, um, but the mainstreaming of realizing that we actually literally need one another to problem solve, to get food to certain places, to protect our elderly, to protect immunocompromised people. Um, I think part of what the pandemic has done in so many ways was that it just interrupted our um, kind of like our tracks, our grooves, the, the, the ways in which we just assumed we did things. And, and that was in kind of physical, physical gathering or physical, physical coordination. But over the past year, I've also been incredibly inspired and, and interested in the many ways people are experimenting to see what kind of gatherings can we create um, with different textured emotions, right? Like you, it may, we think a lot about virtual gathering as the meeting or the work meeting, um, and that is absolutely one kind of texture and one tone. Um, but I've been fascinated by, you know, global networks of, of like underground party throwers who have had to figure out like, how do we still let loose? How do we release? How do we um, create experiences where we're all in these same squares, but we're able to create a story or a psychological narrative that allows us to imagine that these different Zoom rooms and the breakout rooms are, this is an example of a real party called the Bodicey, are in that room, you're in the throat of the body and they're giving everyone shots. And in another room, you're in the womb of the body and everyone's in their bathtub doing like a rebirth ceremony. And in another room, they're, um, people are in the, um, like, the heart and they're telling each other their most precious stories. And another room there in the thing is called junk in the trunk room. And it's a massive, you know, dance party. <laughs> and, and these are all people, every single person's in their own house, in their own home, in different time zones Choo there's a narrative overlay of a picture of a body um, that you can choose which room and which map to go in. And on one hand, these are experienced designers having fun, also completely trying to not go insane in their basement in, you know, April 2020. But they're also creating radical experimentation of digitally native experiences. And as a conflict resolution facilitator, I look at that both and I just honor their creativity. But I also think about when I'm working with a group of a large group of people and they virtually, and they need different forms of emotional access to different parts of their, you know, the same way we would if we were in, this, in a retreat for four days and there's the pool time, the swimming time, and there's a free time and there's the dance party or the karaoke night. And the, like that is deeply informing any type of system that needs to figure out how do you have emotional texture when you can't all be in the same room. And I've been very inspired by the deep creativity of people in all types of contexts to figure out, like, how do you have fun together? How do you grieve together? How do you mark time together? How do you celebrate together when you can't be in the same room? And that has, it's been a fascinating, and again, pre-pandemic, there's people who have been experimenting with this, um, but it just became unignorable because our collective need for it expanded. That range of examples was absolutely incredible. How do you think that we can 
keep that creative momentum or hold that desire to be innovative really dear beyond just, you know, kind of having that um, echo effect of a few months after we start to come out of seclusion, but to carry that forward into the future. Is that something that you've thought about even for yourself personally? I think it's very difficult to keep momentum for momentum's sake, right? We all have a thousand things to do. We're all slightly exhausted. We all have complicated relationships with someone in our families that we need to deal with, right? Like it's life. (laughs) And so for me, I think the thing that keeps momentum, again, over the course of a lifetime is nurturing and practicing the deep ability of discerning the need in front of you and finding creative ways to bring people along to address it. So momentum happens because you found a need that is a real need that a community wants to gather around, that a community wants to fix, that you've made people feel like they have a skill or a talent around which like, it could actually help this thing. And so momentum, to invent momentum in and of itself is like, it's, uh, momentum is the after effect of, of like finding the heat source. So for those people who feel that they've identified a need that could lead to some momentum, what would you say to someone who's in that space who feels called to gather people, but who doesn't feel entirely qualified per se to lead a gathering? Um, In your book, I think you use the question, who am I to gather this way? I'm curious how quote unquote, ready must one be in your opinion? I think that when you address, when you see a need in a community, so just to make it super practical, uh, I live in a park recently where I noticed that there was a poster up that um, was advertising um, something like pick up trash Mondays, right? I walked past it. I have two small kids. They looked at it. They were excited by it. Um, It was a specific time and place and it was a real need. Right. And um, in that and 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 so I I use that example because that's not somebody it might be the local park like association. I don't even know who the host is, but somebody realized this is a need and uh, they're hosting a gathering, quote unquote. But it's not like they have to sit there on a microphone and make a beautiful speech and inspire people with their gorgeous language. Right. You can create a gathering is, again, simply Anytime three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, or end, right? Pick up trash Mondays. And then what actually happens in that space is you meet neighbors, you find different ways of uh, people who are also realizing that they love this place. Like gatherings can look a thousand different ways. And also a gathering is only one of many tools that bring together a community. And I often say like a gathering is not the same thing as a community, Communities have gatherings and gatherings can build a sense of community, but they are two different things. And so a community has many, if you're, if you see a need, then the next question is, do, can I address this alone? Right. I'm hungry. I'm just going to go and make a piece of toast and put some hummus on it. Like I can address my own need. Right. So first, like not all needs need other people. And I think often when people try to create gatherings around a need that is not shared, they're wondering why people are saying, you know, aren't RSVPing to their invitation, right? People often ask me, 
this is a real example. Pre-pandemic, someone asked me, you know, I create, I really want to get to know my neighbors. We created this like Monday neighbors night. There was the first few people were super excited and just like the novelty of meeting was really nice. You know, 20 people showed up and, but then it started dripping, dripping off. Like it started, people stopped coming. It was like just kind of three of us. And, and the question came is like, what's wrong with them? Right. And, and like, why, why don't they see that this is such an awesome thing? And I said to them, well, maybe their need is not the same as yours. And if you, and if you are wanting to create, I think you need a sharper need, a sharper, those people are saying that there's other needs or obligations in their life that don't, that are, that this regular repetitive, uh, invitation does not outweigh all of their other obligations. And so you need to either sharpen the purpose or sharpen the specific need or go and ask them what around, around what would you want to gather around what, right? Some people just want to have social time and maybe you have enough people that are just want to do that. But other people actually, you know, we all are part of many different communities. Community is built when there's a legitimate need at the center. And one of the many tools to build community is gatherings, but it's not the only one. You said in a recent interview with Brene Brown that you would describe your work as helping people have complicated conversations that they've been avoiding. The past year has made even more apparent, if, if it wasn't already, that there are a lot of complicated conversations that need to be had here in America and conversations that some of us have been avoiding for a long time. Now, I'm not going to ask you to explain the entire art of your job as a conflict mediator in one answer, but for those listeners who are nodding their heads right now, like, yes, these conversations do need to happen, what would you suggest as a point of entry for having these complicated conversations for those of us who are not operating on a Priya Parker-like level of gathering or conflict mediation? What are some small-scale ways to start having the conversations that we've been avoiding? I think that, you know, when I wrote The Art of Gathering, I, I went on a journey that uh, probably couldn't have been done if I had waited four years, but I went and I interviewed and experienced uh, remarkable gatherers who, in all types of ways who were, who were credited by others of creating transformative experiences. So I, um, the head coach of the World Cup hockey coach for Team Europe, who has 17 days to bring together 17 nationalities and feel like one team, or a photographer who has seven minutes with the head of state and has to fit and like 19 bodyguards in the room and has to figure out how to get that one shot. Like, what does he do? Literally, second by second, what does he do to shift the script? And one of the people I interviewed is a woman named Ida Benedetto, and she's an experienced designer, and she is... She wrote a beautiful graduate thesis called Patterns of Transformation. And one of the things that she found in it was that for groups to have transformation, there needs to be some amount of risk. And, and, I, and she's, she creates all types of different kind of transgressive group experiences for people. And I asked her a similar question. I, I asked her, like, if we're not going to do all of the crazy, complicated gatherings that Ida does, how do you think about helping a group? And she said... I ask myself four questions, and this is coming back to your question, Jocelyn. And she says, first, what is this group avoiding? Second, what is the gift in helping them face it? Third, 
What is the risk in helping them face it? And fourth, is the gift worth the risk? And I love this frame in part because it starts with discernment, right? And every question here is up for grabs and up for interpretation. If you think about your family system, what I think my family may be avoiding may be completely different than what my stepsister might think my family is avoiding, right? If I work in a, if I'm in a neighborhood that's gentrifying, what I or my neighbor or my neighbor's neighbor thinks that the thing is that we're facing, that we're avoiding might be completely different. Like even that first question is extraordinarily complicated and extraordinarily beautiful. And so I, it's not like, well, you should just go and talk about it. Part of becoming a, a um, I think part of building communities, spaces, gatherings, systems of equity is being humble about like the need, but being curious about it. So, so if we are really at a point where we're after 16 months, 12 months, 16 months, we're thinking about redesigning the way we do things. Part of the process of, of redesigning the way we do things is involving as many people as possible in the redesign, right? And so very practically, if you're part of a church community or a synagogue or an artist community co- collective, part of it may simply be by starting to have a conversation t- and it may not be all together, right? Like it may be asking one at a time, different people with different elements in your community of trust with, hey, I'm seeing this. Do you see this? right? Hey, I don't think we've been talking about this. Do you see this? A group of friends who've been together, friends for 30 years, 40 years, who perhaps had a falling out during the pandemic because they didn't realize how politically different they were. And, but it didn't never showed up until they started talking about vaccine and masks, right? Like, like a lot of, a lot of groups over the last year and a half have had massive reckonings, even with long form relationships. So part of conflict not all types of conflict, but part of the issues that we've been avoiding, there's reasons we've been avoiding them. And so very practically, I'd say, number one, think about what you think the issue that this group has been avoiding has been and check with some other people if if they agree or what they might say. Like begin to harvest that conversation. Then the second is like, what do you think would be a gift in facing it? And then third is like, what is the appropriate intervention or way to face it, right? In some cases, in an intergenerational family, it might be like screaming at each other around the dinner table is a very, it's one of a thousand ways, right, to help a group face something together whom you love, right? It might be instead realizing that a second cousin wants to hold a film screening night at the family reunion this summer that is everyone watching Summer of Soul together, which is like, which is which is this incredible film that shows both a massive concert in Harlem the exact same summer as Woodstock and was the footage was never seen again for 50 to 60 years and it's a a fascinating beautiful fun film i'm making this up right not the movie but i'm you watch a film that people might want to see for a lot of different reasons and you just let it you let it simmer you let it marinate you let it, like the, it, it, all of these elements for conflict resolution it's not like there's like this one magical tool it's like developing discernment developing empathy and then beginning to beginning to ask what is the appropriate intervention for this moment in time and 
how do we begin to do that? And it doesn't mean that it doesn't scare you. Like if the intervention doesn't scare you some amount, it's probably not the right intervention. There should be some amount of risk in it. But there, this, these gatherings can look all sorts of ways. I think you just answered seven of my other questions with that answer. So <laughs> thank you so much. I want to, you, you may in fact have asked this question, but I want to ask and, and maybe dig a little deeper and see if there's anything else to add. It seems from interviews that I've listened to and from what you're saying now that you've continued your conflict resolution work on Zoom during the pandemic. And assuming that's accurate, I'm curious, what did you learn about navigating conflict in the online space versus, you know, in physical space, IRL? So I just, before I answer that, I wanted to um, share a little bit more about the party I talked about earlier, the Bodicey. It was hosted by a group called the Co-Reality Collective. And one of its hosts, Michael Ronan, wrote a beautiful, generous piece um, about how they created digital intimacy um, in that party. Um, I actually have a monthly newsletter where I write about some element of, of digital or virtual or physical gathering. And my, my June newsletter of last, of last year was devoted to analyzing kind of this party and how we can create digitally native experiences. So I wanted to just credit that group for their extraordinary uh, creativity. So Jocelyn, can you just ask that question one more time? Absolutely. Thank you for pausing to share that. I'm very curious to read the particular piece that you're describing. From interviews that I've listened to, it sounds like your conflict resolution work has continued on Zoom during the pandemic. And assuming that's accurate, I'm curious, what have you learned about navigating conflict in the online space versus IRL, if there's anything to add to that from your previous answer? Um, it is such a good question. You're such a good interviewer. Um, I have continued my conflict resolution work during the pandemic. It has only grown, um, and it's been fascinating. And I think that, uh, I'll say, I'll say the pros and I'll say, I'll say the parts that have, that have eased in some ways through virtual collective conflict facilitation and the parts that have been incredibly difficult. And I think, I hope it's relevant to, to different contexts. So, um, the first is, so I, my, my work is really with group conflict. It's not one-on-one -on -one mediation. So it's when, that's why when groups are having, it's time to, for a group to realize they're having a, to have a conversation that they've been avoiding. It's really about group dynamics and a conflict that affects more than just two people. And, um, and, 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 you know, after, after particularly the racial uprising last summer, many, many, many organizations and families and friend groups have had have had real reckonings and I think long time coming reckonings. And, um, so, and because it's been a global pandemic, many of these reckonings are happening over zoom and slack, right? It's, it's, we're not in the same room. We're not in the same offices. It's distributed. So, um, I would say a couple of things, the pros, and this is really as a, as a, in the conflict resolution field and speaking with my peers, the pros is, um, on one hand, particularly when people are in different places. So if you think about, um, a distributed company or even a family that lives in different states. Um, once you can, once people decide that there is a table and that they should come to it, right? Once they want to engage, the number of sessions and the speed at which you can go is much faster because the logistics of getting everybody to the same place have basically disappeared. And so in some cases, once people are willing to face, and that's a big 
phase to get them to and or they get themselves to it the uh the container itself can move much faster because it's it's the barriers to entry to all be in the same room have gone down and the power dynamics there's power dynamics in every group and one of those one manifestation of power is where is something hosted or held is it a neutral turf is it in someone's home if it is it in the office that all of this conflict happens in like where is is it a retreat Another element that's interesting from a power dynamic is on Zoom, there's a neutrality of space because everybody gets to choose where they want to be, right? Everybody's sitting in their own living room or everybody's sitting in their own kitchen or wherever it is. The third that has been interesting from a skill perspective is I often facilitate groups with a co-facilitator, sometimes a conflict resolution facilitator, sometimes a psychologist, sometimes a poet, like, but just, just a second person. And... In the past, in rooms, if we need to touch base, we either need to make you know eye contact or I need to grab them in the hallway and they need to everyone sees that we're saying something or I pass them a note. It's observable, right? In Zoom, you we can if we're if we're good at it, we can privately DM each other, right? You take this one. Oh, they're going that direction. Oh, this interesting. She used this word again. Why don't we actually bring it back to that? We're actually going in a loop here. Why don't we pause? And so there, if, again, if you, if we get nimble with the tools, there's an element of, um, of fluidity and cooperation across facilitators. I think the drawbacks for conflict are in low trust environments, virtual, virtual gathering is incredibly difficult to build trust in. If there's already low trust, it's easier to exit, right? And again, just if you think about virtual versus physical, if I don't want to be here, the first thing I could do is just turn off my camera, right? If I, all of a sudden something gets really hot, I can just literally cover my face in a way that in person you wouldn't have the same options to. I can hit this little red button and leave altogether. You can exit in-person group conflicts, but the barriers to exit are higher, right? You have to physically pick up your body and move across the room. Everybody notices. And also facilitators have all sorts of ways to sort of... Uh, increase, you know, ask you to stay. And so, um, in low trust environments, remote, you know, gathering virtually around conflict is complicated. It's, it's harder. Are you tapping into anything that feels different in group gatherings now, as we enter this new landscape where the pandemic is starting to cool off here in America? Is there anything that either feels like something that's opening up as a possibility or something that feels that we want to plan for in terms of creating psychological safety and gatherings? I think that um, what I've been observing in in-person gatherings, and this may very much change, but is there's a tenderness. Um, there's kind of a, an openness, a rawness, even just the amount of jokes about the social anxiety people are feeling. Just even, I mean, what is jokes? Jokes are naming taboo. Right. And so the fact that there's more jokes about it, I think, is a sign of health that like we're actually saying how we are feeling in this moment. And like, it's OK, like the number of art- cartoons The New Yorker has drawn about the social anxiety of reentry, I think, is a sign of health. Right. It's like the naming of it. Right. Is a sign of health that this is like I'm not always OK in a gathering. I'm not feeling this way. I'm fe- um, I think that is. um you know, I take improv and um, as a student and improv theater, like very deeply at the core of it, as and my understanding of it is it's something that it's a practice that allows individuals to expand their range of perceived choices in any moment. 
And I think that in this mo in moments of tenderness and openness, our range of perceived choices increases. So running with that improv idea, one of the things that you write in The Art of Gathering, which is maybe my favorite part, is you talk about how gathering well is not a chill activity. And I would love to hear what you think about striking a balance between preparation and improvisation looks like. What does finding a good balance between those things look like? So to me, this goes back to really doing the yourself the honor and doing other people the honor of, of thinking ahead of time about what is the need that I'm feeling that others might help address or also be feeling. And um, a need might be joyful release. Need by, might be ecstasy, right? Not the drug, the feeling. <laughs> or by, you know, not the activity, but it's like, I need to feel a sense of relief. Need might be grief, like need not be serious. But in my experience, in any type of gathering, when someone ahead of time has thought very deeply about the need and brings people kind of along with that need, kind of checks in to see if they also are excited to, to gather around that um, and creates the right amount of structure, and that can look very different in different contexts, then the improvisation of a group can be incredibly beautiful because there's enough guardrails to help people know kind of I mean, frankly, that they're, you know, that they're in the right place. Um, and I, and I, and like, there's an entire spectrum from like high curation to high crowdsourcing. I mean, an example of this is the format of an unconference, right? And, um, and Foo Camp was sort of an early harbinger of this in the tech space, but basically unconferences are, com are completely structured in part for improvisation. So the structure is you invite 30 people or hundred people, and, um, there's some amount of structure. Pe sessions could be six minutes each section sessions could be an hour each, but there's some kind of grid and people then just sign up for whatever they want to host for that hour. They create, they crowdsource the agenda themselves. And then as a guest, you can decide which session to go to. Now, is that completely unstructured? No. Do you have two simultaneous sessions? Do you have three simultaneous sessions? How long is each session? Are there any ground rules that the entire organization says, no matter what you're talking about, we expect you to hold up these three values? But there's, but discerning how much structure to put in and then how much improvisation is then allowed and creativity and beauty is, is the art of gathering. <laughs> like that, and, it's, and it's practicing. It's a, it's, a, it's a practice to nurture. What magic do you think really great facilitators bring to a space that most of us maybe don't even notice? You know, I think of facilitators, whether they think of themselves as not as in so many different contexts. So I'll give some examples from other contexts. I think I've done some work in the past with uh, Stone Barns Agricultural Center, which is the farm related to Blue Hill and uh, the restaurant. And um, when I've gone, um, I facilitated conferences and gatherings there before, and I can publicly say that. But um, when I like watch, when I have entered the Blue Hill dining room, there's almost always one person who's just kind of, and I don't even know if they do this on purpose or they're trained to this, that's scanning the room at all times. 
right? They're just literally like a, like a periscope or a lighthouse, like scanning the room just, and, and I, and I, you know, one person and sometimes as many different people at different moments, like what are the needs here? What are the needs here? What are the needs here? What's happening here in virtual spaces? When I'm facilitating, I, even if particularly if it's a gallery view zoom and there's more than boxes than meet the window, I will often be clicking right, 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 left, left, left to scan the room, scan the room, scan the room. How is everyone doing? When I'm facilitating gatherings, particularly ones with larger groups virtually, I assign what I call lighthouses. I assign three or four people who are on different parts of the Zoom screen who are not the facilitator, but who have some amount of social capital in the room to just pay attention to the energy of the group, to DM me privately when they notice certain people are checking out, to, to, to I give them some amount of power to if they notice someone's having some problems to go in and privately DM them. And I trust them to be able to gather the resources and then come back and feed it up to me. So really wonderful facilitators create systems for scanning. Um, I think a second element of a ma- of a sort of magic of facilitation is the facilitator is a very, um, is grounded themselves. They know their own conflict style and their own conflict fears. They know, and they've counterbalanced for them. So for me, I'm a, I'm conflict averse, right? Like it's kind of ironic. I, I, but I'm conflict averse, like, and I know that. And so I both have deep empathy for deep conflict averse cultures and contexts. And I've also trained myself so that when the, con- the, the when the heat starts to increase, I, I don't flee. Right. Um, and, and vice versa. And I think, I think a, a few other things that great facilitators sort of try to cultivate is, um, is a deep sense of what the system needs without versus what a client needs. So I often say like my, if I'm working in a professional context, I'll often say like my client quote unquote is the deep, I'm trying to serve the deepest need of the system. And there's discernment in that. I have, you may not agree with what the deepest, what I think the deepest need is versus like that person who hired me, like I'm serving that guy or that gal. And so there's, even though, because anytime you're entering into a space, you've been invited by somebody. So you're also becoming part of it at some level, but you're, but good facilitators deeply understand that they're serving the needs or the purpose of the group, not the individuals. My last question for you, the theme of this season of hurry slowly is how do we begin again? If you could ask the folks listening to reflect on one big question as we emerge back into community, what would that question be? What do we believe is worthy of our collective time? Throughout this season, I'll be closing out all of my interviews with that same inquiry. Asking my guests what is one big question that they think we should meditate on as we emerge from this pandemic and hopefully begin to lay the groundwork for something new. To paraphrase Clayton Christensen, questions open up the space in our mind for answers. Without the questions, the answers have nowhere to go. Perhaps consider writing down Priya's question in a journal or on a post-it you put on your fridge to keep it top of mind. What do you believe is worthy of our collective time? Sit with the question and see what opens up. Once again, if this episode helped you shift your thinking in a positive way, we are now an ad-free podcast and would appreciate your support. You can make a donation 
at hurryslowly.co slash donations. As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for giving extra polish to the audio and composing our theme song. If you'd like to stay in touch about all things Hurry Slowly, as well as what I'm personally up to, you can subscribe to my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. Thanks for listening, and remember to hurry slowly.